Well, this is. Does anybody, would anybody like to ask for prayers? Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, again for the gift of our life from you, for the gift of yourself to us, particularly in Mass, for all the ways in which you are present to us. Um, the great, what a great love to honor us enough to, um, <laughs> to have created us and then allowed us to fall um, and to trust us with a cross, because um, it's something so many of us, maybe most of us, would like to avoid. Um, what a great gift to us. Um, we are wounded twice, once by the devil and once by you. Um, hard to love the way you do because you are God, and you call us to that love as hard as it is for each of us. Strengthen us in our efforts to love the way you do, to bring you to all that we do. Um, um, to make of our lives a gift, um, to give ourselves up. Strengthen us in a spirit of self-denial, help us to put away so that we can do those hard things that we wouldn't do without your help. I ask a special blessing on all that we're doing together. Um, help open our minds, um, let these works change the way we see, understand, help us to enter into the lives of others more fully through them. Um, to find a support for our efforts to love through what we learn. Um, um, and we um, offer thanks tonight um, for the time that we have together tonight. And all that we do, help us to carry you and your peace with us through the rest of this evening. Um, thank you, Lord. Um, amen. amen. Did everybody get the poetry? Mm -hmm. Oh, I didn't. I missed it. Do you have copies? Yes. Tracy, did you get that one? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's Petrarch and Shakespeare. I'm adding Petrarch tonight as a contrast. <clears throat> I chose the poem tonight be because of its relevance to Calypso and a point I want to make. It, it picks up something we've been talking about in the last couple of meetings on the Odyssey and I hope to make it really clear tonight. Um, we've talked about the way in which um, people don't hear very well, we don't see very well, we don't hear, but very often we, we, we twist things to make them fit our minds. If you know anything about modern philosophy, you know that all of the philosophies from Descartes and Kant forward are idealist. They, they rest on the assumption that what we know are the ideas in our heads. So there's so much about the modern world that has stuck us in our minds. I'm going to come back to that next week when we when we meet because in the overview I do I'm going to go I'm going to try to set the medieval classical world against the modern world in some fundamental ways to to give you some idea of how Shakespeare is modern 
how, how, how he carries the tradition forward, but in a different way because he's modern. So I'll, I'll go into this when we meet next week, but just to touch on it tonight. Um, Odysseus has to confront all these strange creatures and they all have to do with a way of reading and understanding something about himself and Penelope that's important, obviously, if he's to get home and, and restore order, bring, a, bring something to his marriage that he wouldn't have had if he hadn't undergone these experiences. So I chose this one poem by Shakespeare because it speaks so directly to this theme of how we love and, and, and how clearly we see what's before us or whether we turn things to make them what we want them to be. <clears throat> if, you, if you come to Mass here often, you know that, that Father Flynn harps on that. I don't think he will go three homilies without coming back to that same idea that we want things to be the way we want them, when we want in the manner that, I mean, he keeps, I can't even remember, but it's a litany, when we want them the way we want them right now. Um, it's an it's a important concern of his. Um, it seems to me it should be an con important concern for any of us. The, the reason for choosing these poems is this. Petrarch is looked at as the first modern. In some ways, he will be a prototype for Shakespeare. He's at the beginning of the Renaissance on the modern side. But in a strange way, he's doing something that we wouldn't appreciate if we hadn't read Dante. And, and those of you who've been with Dante will know it. You know that, that Dante fell in love with, with Beatrice. He was, I don't know if that's quite the right word and phrase, because it means something a little bit different. He was absolutely taken by her, overwhelmed by her when he was a young boy, when he saw her for the first time. And we know from La Vita Nuova, the, the poem that he wrote on that experience, that he saw in Beatrice an image of the Trinity, that there was something splendid in her, the beauty, the, the illumination that revealed something more in her. And you know that I've been saying that one of the things that Odysseus has got to confront is that experience in women. That, that, and not all women are going to be as attractive as other women, but all women have it. it it's a gift right for women. Um, we learn from the Divine Comedy that Beatrice is an image of Christ. So his early intuition as a boy was true, but the full implications of it don't get worked out until we read the Divine Comedy and we see in the Paradiso that in the last third of his journey, it's Beatrice who comes to complete the journey with him. You know from the Divine Comedy that Virgil, the poet of the Aeneid, is Dante's guide through the Inferno and the Purgatorio. So through the natural order, he turns to Virgil, a natural poet, not a Christian, an, a pagan, as his guide. Because he looks at Virgil as the one who most completely understands our natural human nature, our nature as it's revealed in the natural order. Beatrice comes to him at the top of the Purgatorio to complete that journey. She makes it possible for Dante to learn about divine things. Well, the reason I'm saying this is it's important for this reason. Dante has no confusion about the nature of Beatrice's beauty. She's an image of Christ. When, if you remember the Purgatory, I don't know how many of you were here, and you were here, Tracy, and I think you guys were here. 
Remember when, she, when Beatrice is looking at the griffin, it's the dual image of Christ, it's the eagle and the, and the lion. She looks in the griffin's eyes and she sees Christ in his dual nature. And Dante looks in her eyes and there's that description where it says, every desire was satisfied and set on longing for more. Every desire was answered and set on longing for more. And I remember emphasizing that a lot, underscoring that a lot, because I said at that time that I think most of us have this image of heaven as static, just, you know, there's, doesn't move, it's, I mean, what a boring image, and what we get from Dante is that that's not the case at all. Every desire that we have, every desire that we ever had, except those disordered desires, the ones we have to learn to get rid of, every desire is answered and set on longing for more. Because in heaven we're in the presence of an infinite God. So how can it be otherwise? He is infinite being himself. So with the addition of each soul in paradise, the whole landscape becomes richer. It's like the multiplication of the fishes. You know, and what happens with the end of time, I don't know. But what I do know, believe in, is that you know, we're in the presence of an infinite God and things are anything but dynamic. Um, or, or um, static. Dante looks at Beatrice as an image of Christ. Petrarch, taking off from Dante, looks at Laura, his beloved, and he lavishes on her the same kind of love that Dante lavished on Beatrice, but this is not an image of the Trinity. She's a woman in the natural order. And in that, in that sense, it's a signal of the Renaissance because the divine order is brought down into the temporal order. It's, it's humanized, in a say. It's immanentized. It's brought into the, the imminent order, the indwelling order here. And one of the consequences of that, that act is that he lavishes on her all of these emotions. He describes his feelings in terms of ships at sea and storms. and So Petrarch is one of the great influences that's in the um, in the direction that poetry will take in all of Europe. It's interesting what happens in England because in England when the Renaissance influence gets there it encounters a native tradition that's very simple. The English writers in the past are very simple. So one of the things that happens in England is, is this reconciliation between what they call this native tradition, writing in very simple plain sentiments, emotions, language and this very florid, elaborate, full of conceits um, language we get from Italian and poets like Petrarch. I'm not going to read the Petrarchan sonnets, but I, I, I'm, I'm just giving them to you so that you can read them. Just watch how much he emotes, how much he expresses his emotions, and the, and the metaphors and the conceits that he uses to express those emotions. If you were to go through, he, he wrote this sonnet cycle. It was the first <coughs> complete sonnet cycle to Laura, his beloved. Shakespeare was aware of it. All I mean, the great poets in Europe were all aware of it. It, it was such an important um, achievement. So I, I'm not going to read them, but I just leave that for you here as a contract. Let me read quickly, just go over a couple of poems here, and then I want to um, to focus on the first one, Sonnet 130. 
But let me just touch on um, Sonnet 73 is a beautiful sonnet um, um, on the part of the poet to his beloved um, um, saying that because death is coming, we should learn to love more those things that we're going to soon lose. The, remember, the Italian sonnet takes the form of an octave and a sestet, eight lines, six lines. The Shakespearean sonnet, the English sonnet, which Shakespeare developed, takes the form of three quatrains, three groups of four lines. Take a look at sonnet 73. Behold, hang, cold, sang, yeah? There's the first one. Day, west, away, rest, yes? There's the second. The third, fire, lie, expire, by. So three quatrains, three exempla, three different examples of his theme. He'll give three different examples on the same thing. And then a couplet. This thou perceivest, which makes thy love more strong, to love that well, which thou must leave ere long. The remarkable thing about this, po- this, this sonnet form that most people don't recognize is that it's an affirmation of being at a time when being is being lost. The, metaphic, the, metaphysical, the metaphysical notion of being is that all things participate in being, in God. We have our being in him. So what Shakespeare does is give three different examples to show that the, the, the variety of the forms that being takes in this world. So in Sonnet 73, that time of year thou mayest me behold when yellow leaves are none or if you do hang upon those boughs which sang against the cold be everyone choirs. You see in me winter, yeah, when the boughs have lost their leaves and where late the sweet birds sang. They're gone now because winter's coming in. The second quatrain, in me thou seest the twilight of such day as after sunset, fit, sunset fadeth in the west which by and by black night doth take away, death's second self, that seals of all unrest. Yeah, so you see the, the setting of the sun. The day is coming into an end. So it's another example of death. In nature, in the daytime, in me thou seest the glowing of such fire that on the ashes of his youth doth lie, um, as the deathbed whereupon it must expire, consumed with that which it was nourished by. In me you see a fire going out. Is that clear? So three exempla, three different examples of death in nature. Now the, the, the interesting thing is the couplet that ends the sonnet is always a generalization showing that there is something universal to our knowledge, that, that we can take three different things and make a generalization about them because being itself is universal, it's everywhere. So Shakespeare is a modern, he's writing just at that time before, historically, before we lose a sense of metaphysics, because after Descartes and Kant, metaphysics is gone, it's out the window. We live in a scientific world that's empiricist in nature, and our grasp of metaphysics is gone. So this is interesting to watch, I mean, to see what Shakespeare's doing, but Anyway, that's his form. Um, Psalm 116 is often read at marriages. A bride and groom will often have this passage. I've heard it numerous times. I was asked to read it once at a wedding. Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds or bends with a remover to remove. Notice all the knots. It's not this, it's not this, it's not this. 
It's not love which alters when it alteration finds or bends with the remover to remove. No, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. It is the star to every wandering bark whose worth's unknown, although his heights be taken. So it's this, it's not this, it's not this, it's this. Love's not time's fool, though rosy lips and cheeks within his bending sickle's compass come. Love alters not with his brief hours and weeks, but bears it out even to the edge of doom. Love will be faithful to the end, no matter what, whatever the circumstances. If this be error, then upon me proved, I never writ, nor no man ever loved. Okay, so um, I want to read 129 because it's an illustration of an onomatopoeic quality that we've talked about together, but it's really powerful here. He's defining lust, but listen to the poem when I read it and notice how the lines themselves imitate by their motions, imitate the motions of lust. If you compare it with Psalm 116, notice how meditative and calm and measured all the lines of 116 are. Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. Love is not love which alters when it, you know, it goes on like this. Love's not time's fool. Love alters not. It will go on. The, the lines tend to match the form. You know, they go to the end and pause and go to the next line and continue over. But watch this. This is about lust, and notice how the lines jerk, they pause, they interrupt, they, the notions in the lines are contrary to each other, so they conflict. So the form is imitating the motions of lust. So while he's defining it, it's actually drawing us into the experience of lust so that we can feel what it is as we're reading it. I mean, good poets do that, yeah? John 1.29. The expensive spirit in a waste of shame is lust in action. Until action, lust is perjured, murderous, bloody, full of blame, savage, extreme, rude, cruel, not to trust. See, can you hear that? How different it is from the first one? That's an accident? Absolutely not. Shakespeare is a master. He knows what he's doing. It's perjured, murderous, bloody, full of blame, savage, extreme, rude, cruel, not to trust. Enjoyed no sooner, but despised straight. Past reason hunted, no sooner had. Past reason hated, as a swallowed bait. On purpose laid to make the taker mad, mad in pursuit and in possession so. Had having and in quest to have, extreme. A bliss in proof and proved a very woe. Before a joy proposed, behind a dream. All this the world well knows, yet none knows well to shun the heaven that leads men to this hell. How hard it is to overcome lust. We know it's bad, but emotions sometimes still make us give in to it. So, okay, that's just a quick sort of sampling of Shakespeare. I wanted I wanted to um, read him tonight for this poem. So let's do one thirty. Now remember what I said about Petrarch. Petrarch holds Laura up as this ideal, beautiful woman. But remember, this is not Beatrice in heaven. This is an earthly woman. And remember what happens when Odysseus deals with the Sirens, Scylla and Charybdis, the Lestrigonese woman, Calypso, Circe, 
I mean, he's, he's having to encounter aspects of the feminine and aspects of himself that are awakened by a woman that are disastrous. Okay? So just keep Petrarch in, in mind, and this is Shakespeare, who, has, who knows Petrarch's work, clearly. So he, he knows that there is this tendency on the part of this Italian poet to, to present this woman as if she is everything in the world and idealizes her and describes all of the emotions that she sets, she sets in motion by her presence. This is Shakespeare, Sonnet 130. My mistress's eyes are nothing like the sun. Coral is far more red than her lips red. If snow be white, why then her breasts are done. If hairs be wires, black wires grow on her head. I have seen roses damasked red and white, but no such roses see I in her cheeks. And in some perfumes is there more delight than in the breath that from my mistress reeks. I love to hear her speak, and I know well that music hath a far more pleasing sound. I grant I never saw a goddess go. My mistress, when she walks, treads on the ground, and yet by heaven I think my love as rare as any she belied with false compare. Which is the truer love? A man who idealizes his wife to make her something that she's not, or a man who loves his wife for who she is, or, or at least who God has given her to be, not something you know, he's trying to make her in, her in his head. For those of you who did Dante, remember when we did the siren episode? Remember that when Dante in the top, or towards the top of Purgatory comes to the siren, it, it's Dante's handling of the siren thing we get in the Odyssey. Um, remember when he comes to the siren, her, his first description of her, remember this is Dante who's already completed the journey. And he's describing it looking back. He says, when she first appeared, she was lame and sallow-skinned and deformed. And the more he looked at her, the more beautiful that she became. And when she opened her mouth and began to sing, the more he looked at her, the more he was entranced by her singing. Until he could not turn away. And finally, Virgil violently wakes him up. Do you remember? Because Lucia... Remember, Virgil can't even do this on his own. Natural reason can't handle this on its own. This is like um, um, Homer saying, Odysseus is not going to get free of Circe and Calypso without divine help. He can't do it on his own. Virgil shaking Dante violently because Lucia, divine light, came to get Virgil reason. Reason needed help. And violently wakes him up, saying, there's no way I could have wakened you. you know, but he's getting angry at him and saying, wake up, um, because Dante's entranced. Um, welcome back. Hello. Welcome back. Hey. So, um, here in the Odyssey, we're getting Odysseus encountering these, these feminine archetypes, which are real, but they're also images of something that has a power to awaken something in him. Because remember, when the men go by the siren's island, she starts singing, and the men are so entranced they go to the shore and they're dead. The, the, the shore is strewn with skulls. So, so I thought this would be... Um, did you like that Shakespeare poem or not? Did you? I love it. No? No. You didn't like it? Oh, no, no. No? It's really good. Skulls, <laughs> struggle. 
Okay, let's <laughs> let's look at the Odyssey. Let's look at the Odyssey. How are your legs? Fine. Yeah, you made it. I made it. Yeah. My feet are fine. <laughs> God. How many miles did you do? On the Camino 192. Did you do what you set out to do? Yeah. Yeah. We did. We did. Yep. Candy, we just read a, a, a poem by Shakespeare. Um, you can go online to get what we did. It's, it'll be online, but we've got to go. I've got to, this is the last class on the Odyssey. So, by the way, let me take a second here. Next week we start Shakespeare. Completely different world. We are, we are, we are in a modern world. Shakespeare's carrying a Christian world forward, but it's not the medieval, it's not Dante's medieval world. It is radically transformed. It is very, very different. But it, it'll be clear to anybody who's done the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, the Divine Comedy, for anybody who's read those works, you, you'll come to see, I think, at some point that Shakespeare could never, never, never have done what he did without those. They had just, they shaped his mind, his way of understanding things. Obviously, there are lots of other influences. Shakespeare is um, very aware of Machiavelli, and a new notion of modern politics, which I'll try to make clear when we meet next week, but we're in the modern world. We will start with Merchant of Venice and Othello, the, the two plays on Venice, which are the prototype of a modern America, that's why we're doing them, to see what Shakespeare has to say about us, our, our regime. And um, we will do Hamlet after that. It's his treatment of the Reformation, a northern Northern European um, Hamlet as a student at Wittenberg where Luther hung up his theses and then we'll end on Winter's term. I'm I'm think or sorry, Winter's thanks. Winter's tale. See? There it is. Um, I'm thinking about doing Lear, um, but we'll see. I'm 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 gonna stop and ask you guys when we get through with Hamlet to see how you're doing and did the books come in, the Martin and Venice books? No, I mean they came in, but how many, you, how many, you need them, how many need them? Three, that's what, yeah. I'll just go to the bookstore. Yeah. My suggestion is if you can get a signet, that's what we'll read, um, because we're gonna start next week. Um, we, we, I'll only, I'll only touch on the beginning of Merchant of Venice because the greater part of the class will be to set out these worldviews, but, but we will get into Merchant of Venice. But we won't complete it till the following, the following week, or maybe even the week after that, two weeks. So, because my plan right now is to, is to take two weeks on each play. Which version did you say to get? It's the Signet edition. It's just small. Um, sorry, we're short. Um, anyway, that's what we're doing. So next week, a big overview. It's going to be really, I think, really important. I thought what I would do tonight is try to go quickly through the story. I don't do this as a rule because I'm trusting that you guys are reading it and I don't want to cover a lot of ground in the story, but since we're tying it up tonight, I thought what I'd do is just quickly read the story details, selections that carry the plot forward so that you have the details in your mind and 
and then take up what I think are some of the most important themes of the work and, and then finally answer this question, where is Christ? Is, is Odysseus anticipating Christ? Is he a foreshadowing of, um, of him in some ways or, um, or should I retire and, and accept that I'm just going mad? Um, okay, quick, very, very quick review. Um, you know the scheme of the work. The, the major schemes I've given already. Um, remember that that Odysseus has been away for almost 20 years. That the Iliad opened in the ninth and a half year. We saw that. And we know that it opens in the midst of things. There's a problem, and that something's going to happen to bring it to a close, because nine and a half is just short of ten. But we have the same thing here. That, that's a convention. It's, it's an aspect of the epic. It's one of, it's one of the marks of the epic. And by the way, you'll see that in really good novels. Things won't change. When Dante writes the Divine Comedy, yeah, in the midst of things. Why? What we learn is Dante's in danger of going to hell. We learn that as we read. This is the poet of the Divine Comedy. We don't learn that until later, but we find out he's, he's in danger of going to hell. When the book begins, he tries to climb that mountain. Remember, he wants to get to the sun, and we learn it was a big mistake. He cannot do it by himself. He cannot do it by himself. Men are powerless to make that effort towards God. He can only do it with a grace, with the help of God. We learned that, that Mary had seen Dante's plight. She'd gone to Beatrice because she knew that Dante loved Beatrice. Beatrice went to Lucia, or wait, Mary went to Lucia, Lucia went to Beatrice. Beatrice went to Virgil. So what we see eventually is that this divine action is set in motion, that heaven has been working for Dante. We don't learn it until later, but a whole divine action is set in motion to, to help save this guy. So we're in the midst of things in the Divine Comedy. That's in the edge of the modern world. It, Dante got it from Homer and Virgil. The Odyssey opens in the ninth and a half year. He left Troy nine and a half years earlier. He had all these ventures. Um, he was a year on Circe's Island and then a year on Calypso's Island. No. No? Eight years in one year. What did I say? Oh, sorry. God, it's getting worse. God, oh, it's getting worse. Eight years on Calypso's Island, one year on Circe's. Was that right? Um, the, the gods have to come and help him, and he gets free, and he goes to Scaria, the, the community of the um, Phaeacians, and it's there that he tells his stories. And it's there that we learn what happened for the previous nine years. All these adventures take place. When he's done with the story, the Fiacons take him home, and we have the homecoming. That's the story. Now, a couple of the really important schemes that we've seen is this. In the first four or five books, we have the Telemachi. And what we saw there are three homes, and all of them are in disarray. Um,
all of them have some disorder. In, in one sense, Ithaca's the worst because you've got 100 suitors tearing it apart. At least there's some order in Pylos and Sparta. But in both, in both Pylos and Sparta, um, there are hints that there are problems. They're, they're not problems great enough to break up a marriage. I don't, don't, I mean, the book doesn't lend to that, lend itself to that reading. But um, we, if, if we're paying attention, we see that in Pylos, there's almost no mention of the wife until the very end. For almost the entire section, Nestor is talking about the war and what went on, and the wife only comes in, and she only comes in incidentally at the end. In Sparta, when we get there, we see that um, things are sad and heavy. Um, in Pylos, the, the brothers are still mourning for the loss of their brother, and Antilochus, remember, who died in, in uh, Troy. And in Sparta, um, they're grieving over the losses as well, except we also know that, um, that Menelaus and Helen carry the wounds of the betrayal of the past because she left with Paris and the war was fought. And her answer to that, we saw, was drugs. She offers drugs to Telemachus. And it's a telling, it's a telling episode. It, it seems so subtle. I mean, there's so much going on in Homer. Because remember, we learned earlier that Orestes was Agamemnon's son, and he had to avenge his father's death. His mother killed him, so he has to kill his mother. That hangs over his head, that this kid had to do this really difficult thing. And, and um, he, he's berating himself because he doesn't know if he has the courage to deal with these suitors. And Helen offers him drugs. And she says, it will make you forget your suffering. What would have happened to Orestes if he had taken drugs? Would he have been able to do his, avenge his father's death? No way. So we know the danger. If, if, if pain is a burden, it's a great, great burden. If, if the answer is doing away with it, how can anybody realize a justice? How can they ever work for a justice? Um, so we see these homes in disorders, and then we get the adventures. And we see there, that the, that the two extremes of the adventures are the Phaeacians at Scaria and the Cyclops on their island. And what we see are the, the Phaeacians are a people given to techne, to art. And these are just brutal creatures. So, we learned that at one point they were next to each other. They're both beloved by the gods. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just amazed at this. They were both beloved by the gods. They still are because we know that uh, Poseidon is angry at Odysseus because he put out his son's eye. Polyphemus is a cyclop. It's, it's his son. So both people were beloved by the gods, but the Phaeacians moved away because the cyclops were so brutal. So... We, these are set up as extremes, as, as a, I think as a, as a way of helping us to measure the kinds of cities that Odysseus has to come to, what he learns from them, and what he's going to bring home once he gets home. Um, and that brings us to this, this, this notion of the mean. In the, in the Iliad, we saw that Achilles was, the, in some sense, the perfection of this this intrinsic sense of dignity, of, of worth that a man has that can't be answered, can't be compensated 
for with booty, but he still has to deal with an injustice. He has to right a wrong. Helen was taken. Um, the Trojans won't return her. The Trojans have no notion of that justice, remember? They have no notion. Priam backs up his son because it's his son. So we see emerging in the West this notion of some intrinsic worth to the human. It raises all sorts of questions about justice. What, what's due to a person? How do we give a person its due when he's been injured, wronged? So we saw Achilles is the, the image of this nobility that man can attain, but we also saw the cost of it. He, can't, he cannot, cannot attain it until he gives up his life and acknowledges his weakness. It's something Hector never does. It's something none of the other people do. We see in Odysseus a new kind of hero. And we've seen, we're going to come back to this in a few minutes, that, um, that there are other qualities to the human person that Odysseus brings to light. That he has to face a much greater range of problems than Achilles did. Achilles was a warrior. He's a war. Remember in the shield there were the two cities. He, he's in war. He's a fighter. Odysseus is going home. He's going home to a city. He's going home to a family. He has a son and a wife. So he's facing problems. Um, he's going to have to struggle to deal with them, to deal with things that Achilles in some sense doesn't. And I suggested last time that what, what we see in Odysseus is a realization of this mean, what Aristotle is going to go on to call the mean, but I think we, we get, Aristotle got it from Homer, that there are these natural virtues, courage, temperance, justice, prudence, and all of them are active and realized in Odysseus. The, the ravenous belly you know, is, the, is one of the great images. It's like I've got a couple of other quotes. I can't remember them when I go through the, the story in a minute. I'm, I may pick them up. But over and over and over again, Homer keeps talking about the belly and the way that it makes us do things that forces us to extremes. Um, sex, food, drinking, all the things that the suitors do. Um, the companions do the same thing. They're told not to eat the cattle. They do, and they lose their homecoming. So one of the things that Odysseus has got to learn to overcome in himself are these natural appetites that push people to extremes, that drive them to extremes, that keep them from being temperate, just, prudent, courageous. Okay. Um, okay. Those, that's just a quick review. What I'd like to do right now is I'd like to quickly go through the narrative. I'd like to just tell the end of the story, except um, I'd like to just do it by focusing on certain passages. So there's a lot I'm going to leave out. There's nothing I can do about it. I, 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 don't, I, I know that this was much easier to read than the Iliad, I know. But I'd, I'd like to try to hold it together so that the conclusions that we come to carry more of the body with it, the body real. So we're, we're not just in abstractions in our head. But let me stop before I, before I turn to the text. Any questions before we go on? No?
Fred? I, I have one, but... Let me hear it, can I? I may, I may put you off, but... What, what is it? Well, it's, it's, it's really best asked after you... Let, after, okay, okay, okay. Let's start. 165, I'm just going to quickly run through the narrative here, just to... Remember that um, Hermes went to Calypso's island to free him. And I think I, I mentioned before, remember in both instances with Calypso and that's those two other extremes, by the way. Did I say this? Um, Circe's an image of that in woman which arouses the animal nature in man, the sexual. I've said that, right? Mm -hmm. And that she did not want to let him go. She, she's an image of the power of control that a woman has by virtue of the sexual passions awakened in a man. Yeah? Because she reduces men to swine. I mean, she turns men into animals. And she's shocked that she doesn't have that power over Odysseus, and she doesn't know that Hermes helped him. So we learn that there's no way he would have escaped this without divine help. So they lie together, they, they, they have this sexual relationship for a year, whatever that means, I don't want to go into that right now, but, but we know that, that sh she's glad to have that power. Um, and with Odysseus, she doesn't have it. And um, he leaves and eventually ends up on Calypso's island. Calypso's an image of that in woman that um, gives us intimations of immortality. She offers him immortality. She's an image of immortal beauty. And remember I suggested that I, I don't think we can underestimate the power of beauty in this, um, and, and particularly as a feminine attribute. That beauty is one of the transcendentals for the medieval mind. One of the descriptions of God and his being is its beauty. As a matter of fact, in, the, in Thomas's transcendentals, Christ is an image of that beauty. He's the image of the Father. Imagine that radiance. Women are particularly gifted with it, we think, and that's certainly Homer's reading of it. So in Homer's world, we, we cannot, man cannot underestimate the power that a woman has by virtue of her beauty. And if that wasn't clear in this, it, you couldn't mistake it in the Iliad, because why is the war being fought? Yeah. Helen, I think it was Marlowe who gave that, the, 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 the face that launched the, the thousand ships, you know, the, the radiance that... And remember what the, what the Trojan men said on the tower when I read that, you know, on the walls of Troy, when they said, no wonder they're fighting this war. You know, they looked at the woman and looked at Helen. Um, so he, he, he left Circe and then ended up with Calypso's Island, and it's only because of Hermes' help that he can get free and comes home. Um, we went through those. I want to pick up here um, with... Circe on page 164-65. The year is up. He goes to his companions and tells them it's time to leave. Um, there's a reluctance to leave. The bottom of 164. I, mounting the surpassingly beautiful bed of Circe, clasped her by the knees and entreated her, and the goddess listened to me, and I spoke to her and addressed her in winged words. He says, let me go home. And she tells him then, it's interesting that, that she and Calypso are goddess figures. They're like minor goddess figures. 
that he has tasks to perform before he can get home at the top of 165. First, there's another journey you must accomplish and reach the house of Hades and of, of revered Persephone, there to consult with the soul of Tiresias, the Theban, the blind prophet, who sense slays unshaken within him, to whom alone Persephone has granted intelligence even after death, but the rest of them are flittering shadows. We, we hear again and again, the nature of the dead is gibbering idiots, flittering shadows. They have no body. So they are these meaningless shades. Um, so she tells him what to do, gives him instructions, and then he goes, and after he performs this ritual where he cuts these animals and, and makes blood, Tiresias comes up and drinks from the blood, and it's only then that he can that he can make his way through hell or the underworld rather, and talk with these people. It's interesting because as soon as he cuts the animal, all the souls clamor. They want blood. It reminds me of the vampire myth, but they want blood because without it, there's no life. So we see that there is this powerful urge for life in the body. Christianity answers that because we believe after the resurrection our bodies, we can't go to the underworld. God made us with bodies. So we're, they're meant to be, Paul talks about it, remember that they're going to be gloriously transformed. They're not bodies the way we know them, but there is this deep longing for life, even here in the pagan world in the afterlife. Um, Tiresias says on 171, um, after he drinks, at the top, even so and still you might come back after much suffering if you can contain your own desire and contain your companions at that time when you first put in your well-made vessel at the island of Thrinakia. That's going to be crucial, he says, to not eat those cattle. If you keep your mind on homecoming and leave these unharmed, you might make your way to Ithaca. This is all if, not a certainty. He has things he's going to have to do. He's going to have to deal with with some hardships. But if you do harm them, then I testify to the destruction of your ship and your companions, but if you yourself get clear, you will come home in bad case with the loss of all your companions in someone else's ship and find troubles in your household. This is really interesting. The, the final episode that will determine whether he, the outcome of whether he gets home or not has to do with food. One of the most ordinary things in our life food. They're told not to eat the cattle. I mean, you'd think it would be some enormous, big, gigantic something to do. It's eating. And all the way through, the, the, the suitors keep eating Odysseus's home, the ravenous belly. Homer keeps using that. Our appetites for life. We can't have life without food. So it seems insignificant. But here it's not. And then he says, after he's killed the suitors, if, if he can manage to do that, then you must take up your well-shaped oar and go on a journey until you come where there are men living who know nothing of the sea. Remember, the sea is an image of the irrational. Athena's never at sea with Odysseus. She meets him on land. The sea is always changing. It's in flux. It's not our home. It's not where we're meant to be. Our home is on land. Um, and so Tiresias says to him, um, take up your well-shaped oar and go on a journey until you come where there are men living who know nothing of the sea and who eat food that is not mixed with salt, who never have known ships. 
whose cheeks are painted purple, who never have known well-shaped oars, which act for ships as wings do. It's like the falcon ships. And I will tell you a very clear proof, and you cannot miss it. When as you walk, some other wafer happens to meet you and says, you carry a winnow fan, because he doesn't recognize an oar, on your bright shoulder, then you must plant your well-shaped oar that is, this is amazing, that is all hardships of dealing with a sea, what is constantly in flux, comes to an end. You must plant your well-shaped oar on the ground and render ceremonious sacrifices to the Lord Poseidon, one ram and one bull, and a mounter of sows, a boar pig, and make your way home again, and render holy hecatombs to the immortal gods who hold the white, the white heavens, all of them in order. Death will come to you from the sea in some altogether unwarlike way. In the Paradiso, for those of you who did it, remember when Dante went into the heavens, he kept describing his journey in terms of a ship at sea and how dangerous it was. Because the, the sea is likened to grace. It's a mystery. It's full of dangers. We don't have control over it. Um, okay, so um, he goes on. I want to do this just very quickly, a couple of things. He meets his mother, and we learn from her that she died from grief on page 172 and 3. He talks with the queens of the dead, um, and it's interesting because all of them um, boast of their matings with the gods. The gods have mated them and given them children. They boast of their accomplishments and their, their beautiful homes, all the treasures they had, their possessions, their, their children. Not a one that I remembered mentions her husband. On, on the bottom of not only that, 174. Wait, let's see. Wait, sorry. Um, 176 at the bottom. I saw Myra, Clymene, and Euryphile, the hateful, who accepted perilous gold for the life of her own dear husband. Um, here's a woman who sold her husband out. We learn in a minute um, from Agamemnon on 180, no, sorry, um, 178 at the bottom, he talks about the treachery that he faced when he came home that Agistos had and his wife had plotted to kill him at <clears throat> the bottom of the page, um, and feasted me, killed me there with the help of my sluttish wife, as one cuts down an ox. Over and over and over again, we get these, this sense that um, either women betrayed men um, treacherously or forgot them. None of them remember husbands. And remember what's going on. Odysseus never forgets Penelope, even if he's away. He's grieving eight years on Calypso's island. He grieves at Circe's island. He wants to get home. And Penelope never forgets him. So um, we've got a strange contrast here. In 180, after talking with Agamemnon, he, he talks with Achilles here. And he, he praises him for all that he'd done towards the bottom 180. Son of Peleus, far the greatest of the Achaeans, Achilles, I came for the need to consult Tiresias, if he might tell me you know, what he has to do. Achilles, no man before has been more blessed than you are, nor ever will be. Before when you were alive, we Argives honored you as we did the gods, and now in this place you have great authority over the dead. 
This is, now this is the great hero of the Iliad. This is Homer still, this is a work later. Achilles responds, O shining Odysseus, never try to console me for dying. I would rather follow the plow as thrall to another, slave to a farmer. This is the great Achilles. Slave to a farmer, rather than um, one with no land allotted him and not much to live on, than be king over all the perished dead. So much for honor, as we saw it in the Iliad. To make it worse, 182, he, he meets with Aias, and remember, Aias and Achilles were the two strongest, most powerful men in the Iliad. They represented the two extremes. At the end, after Achilles was killed, Aias wanted Achilles' armor, and you know what a problem that was already. And um, it was given to Odysseus, and Aias became so resentful that he carried that, that grudge into the afterworld on page 182. Um, Aias, who for beauty and for achievement surpassed all the Danans next to the stately son of Peleus. So I spoke to him now in words of conclusion. Aias, son of stately Telamon, could you then never even in death forget your anger against me because of the cursed armor? He goes on and describes it. Down below, so I spoke, he gave no answer, and went after the other souls of the perished dead men into the darkness. There, despite his anger, he might have spoken, or I might have spoken to him, but the heart in my inward breast wanted I can't my wanted something to see the souls of the other perished dead men. Interesting comment here. I mean just a um, Ajax also, right? Yeah. Yes, yeah. In the Aeneid, you, you haven't read it, so I mean, those of you who have will know, but remember in the Aeneid, the parallel scene to this that, that Virgil took from Homer is Dido and Aeneas. Remember, Aeneas has to leave Dido, remember, and she commits suicide, and he meets her in the underworld, and there's that awful spurn. That's, she, he comes to her wishing, he, I mean, he didn't want to leave. You know that. He, he said, I have to go. The gods told me to do He's following the commands of the god. She's so despairing that she goes off and takes her life, and when they meet in the underworld, she turns away from him, and she leaves him with his guilt and shame. Here, it's not a man and a woman, it's a man over armor. And we saw how important that, it's almost like a man, what the, embraces, you know, the armor and the idea, and I'm using that word deliberately because I want to go to Calypso again in a minute because there's something stunning going on. But, so we get a real critique of the Iliad, indirectly here in the context of this new hero, Odysseus, okay? Um, he goes back to Circe and she tells him of the adventures he still has ahead of him, the Sirens, the skill in Charybdis, and Thrinacia. And you remember, I, I'm not gonna go through this because we don't have time, but remember as he approaches the, the island of the Siren, he puts wax in his ears, or in the, in his ears, and he t ties himself to the mast. No, no, he puts no. wax in the ears. Yeah, right, and ties himself to the mast, and then he listens. I should read it, but I'm not good. And then as he approaches the island, you can hear the sirens calling the men, beckoning, in this music, and we see all these skulls, so that there is something in the beauty of a woman drawing men on, that the, the power of that beauty. The, is, is enchanting, spellbinding. 
So, and you've got all these dead men. Um, in the in the skill in Charybdis, I, I want to, and I want you to go back for a moment because I, um, this is really interesting. Um, quickly, go back to or go to 188. When he returns after he leaves the land of the dead, and he returns to talk with Circe, and she tells him what he has to do. Look at this. She tells him he's going to have to go through skill in Charybdis to stay close to Scylla because he will lose a human there, but if he risks Charybdis, he'll lose everybody. She describes that, 188, about a third of the way down. So she spoke, but I in turn said to her in answer, Come then, goddess, answer me truthfully this. Is there some way for me to escape away from deadly Charybdis, but yet fight the other one off when she attacks my... Com Here's what I meant about anti-romantic. Odysseus, he's facing a lesser of two easily. He's going to suffer. He's going to lose. The interesting thing about the, op the Charybdis option is she only does it three times a day. So Odysseus wants, is asking whether there isn't some way he could do that so that he doesn't lose anybody. Right? As if they're, because you don't know when she's going to do it. And she tells him, here, well, hardy man, your mind is forever fighting and battle work. Will you not give way even to the immortal? She is no mortal thing but a mischief that is don't risk it. So when he goes through the straits, he knows he's going to lose men. I mean, this is, and it's a beautiful <coughs> description of a principle that defines almost everything that he does. Because wherever he goes, he's going to suffer. It's part of the condition, long-suffering addition. Remember my definition of suffering. Suffering means to bear up from underneath, to bear. And it's the word from which we get fertile, that something good comes out of it. It's something good. And here, I think it's virtue. These, that as we learn to deny ourselves and, and struggle not to do the wrong things, we get better and better and better as people. Um, that we, We've been given this potential to become good, but there's no way we can achieve it without struggling with these other things, giving them up and things like that. I don't want to. I don't want to go through this, but um, but um, on the same page, one eighty-eight, when she's describing the Thrinakia adventure, she says at the bottom of the page, "Then you reach the island Thrinakia, where are pastured the cattle, the fat sheep, seven herds of oxen, and as many beautiful sheep flocks and fifty to each. There is no giving birth among them. They are not a part of generation. These are like Plato's forms. I don't know how else to describe them. They're eternal." What Homer's showing us is that, that all life-giving things have their source in something eternal. If men don't learn to respect that, they're going to suffer in some way. Food is the basis of our life. We take it for granted. Homer couldn't. It's right at the source of our very existence. Um, and remember what the suitors are doing. They have no, they're eating people, like the Cyclops. That's one of the things he learns from the Cyclops. Um, I'm going to quickly pass over some things. The Falcons take him home and drop him off. He's asleep. He's, um, he's surrounded by possessions. They, they took time to, to, to accept donations from people. On page 205, 
Um, he wakes up and Athena comes to him in the form of a man on page 205 at the top to her. Odysseus greets her. Remember, she's in disguise and he says, now I myself have come here with these goods that you see, he's surrounded by these possessions, but leaving as much again to my children. I have fled in exile because I killed the son of Idomeneus, um, a man swift of foot who in wide creeks surpassed all other men um, for speed of for, feet, for speed of his feet, I killed him because he tried to deprive me of it. Why is he lying to her? This is a wise man. Odysseus is a wise man. He's lying. Why is he lying? He doesn't want her to know who he really is. Why? He wanted to, do, he wanted to arrive in secrecy. I mean, that, actually, that's, that's, that's true, too. Yeah, because he'll put on his skies. I think, and she's going to praise him. She, the first thing she says, she says, the next page, um, she praises him at the bottom of 205. The goddess great Athena smiled at him and stroked him with her hand and took on the shape of a woman. He would be a sharp one and a stealthy one who would get ever past you by contriving. He said, I'm very fast. This man is very fast. He tried to take my possessions and I killed him. Isn't this, you know, when she said, um, uh, addressed him in winged words, saying, is he a sharp one, stealthy one, would ever get past you? Isn't that his use of language now versus his use of force? Where before, as a warrior, he just would apply a bit of bull in China, yeah, shop, yeah, 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 kind yeah. of thing, and now he's, yeah. I mean, he's lying, but he's, he's yeah. it's sneaky. He's sneaking no, it's good, yeah, because it's going to, it's going to pick up with a nobody. And he's doing that, it seems to me, for this reason, because Odysseus is who he is. His heroism rests in part on the fact that he takes responsibility for evil. He's, he's letting her know not to fuss with him right now, he, because he doesn't know it's Athena. He's got all these possessions. What do we know about men in possessions in this home? Or not Homer's world, our world. If suddenly you're surrounded by possessions and a stranger comes up to you, what do you, I mean, there's two things to do. There's, we can either be innocent, like we're in a safe world, or you can take precautions. Odysseus, is, she compliments him because of his cunning, stealth. And it, it's no wonder that he says, I, I killed this man who is known for being fast, because he wants this stranger to know not to mess with him. Um, that he's killed people and he's really fast. And, and Athena compliments him. This is a man who is on guard in a world of evil. He has to take precautions. He can't be innocent because we've seen what happened to innocent people everywhere in the book. Um, quickly, Odysseus goes to stay with Eumaeus, his, his swineherd. And by the way, remember the swineherd is the lowliest. It's the, it's the swine. The, the, the story is so tender because we learn that Eumaeus was the prince of a king. He was going to be a king. And once he, I mean, this is the innocence that I was talking about. This, this woman servant treacherously sells him off. She, but she's, here's another betrayal. She sells him for the money. And he ends up being taken away. And here he's um, um, Odysseus' father gave him this job and he's now the swineherd. Over and over and over again, when Homer talks about him, he says, oh, Eumaeus, he speaks to him directly. It, it's, I think it's the only time he does it in the book where he speaks directly to a character. 
So here we have a man who had this great fortune ahead of him, all lost, and yet he remains absolutely faithful to Odysseus. He, he will be with him at the end when he fights the suitors. Um, Telemachus comes, they reveal each, themselves to each other um, on page 225. Athena goes to Sparta to tell him to get home. Remember, he's been staying with Menelaus um, on page 225. She says, get home because your father and um, her brothers are pressuring her to marry. And if you don't get back, she might not be waiting for your father anymore. And remember, he's had all these prophecies that his father's um, uh, going to come home. An interesting note before we go on. On his journey back, Telemachus will meet this man named Theoclymenos, who is a killer and a prophet. And when he gets home, he himself will prophesy that Odysseus is already home, and he is. Um, I just hold that in your mind because there's this interesting passage before the suitors die where um, Theoclymenos will, his prophecy will come true then. But this is what Athena says to Telemachus here to get him to go home. On the bottom of 225, he is out doing the rest of the suitors and the gifting gift. This is the man who looks like the likely husband for Penelope and has been piling up presents to win her. No property must go out of the house unless you consent to it, for you know what the mind is like in the breast of a woman. She wants to build up the household of the man who marries her and of former children and of her beloved and wedded husband. She has no remembrance when he's dead. That's an, this is the, Athena. This is an exact description of what we saw in the underworld. Remember, either the, the, the men have nothing good to say about women, and we've seen that since the Iliad, or, or, or the women have betrayed their men or don't remember them. Um, so the backdrop of the story is Penelope and Odysseus are struggling to come together when we have all these other examples of marriages in which that's not what's been going on. Um, after Telemachus comes home, he and his father are reunited. There's just a couple of dogs, page, or a couple of pages I want to look at. One, when he meets his dog. You remember what happens, yes? Page 261, the top. Odysseus comes to his estate, huh? Recognizes Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You want to comment on that? Do I want to comment on yeah. that? Yeah. <laughs> Fred, any, any thought? On, you remember? On, message from the, the, yeah, the, the author. What it means. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I'm not... I've got nothing. You just remembered. I thought that was good. Mm, that was good. Yeah, it's here on top of 261. He comes home to his state. There the dog Argos lay in the dung. Remember, the, the suitors are tearing things apart. His, his estate's in disarray. Here's the dog, all covered with dog ticks. It's like Eumaeus. I mean, there's all this poverty and yet this fidelity in the midst of all this, these betrayals. Now as he perceived that, perceived that Odysseus had come close to him, he wagged his tail, laid both of his ears back, only he now no longer had the strength to move any closer to his master, who watching him from a distance, without Eumaeus noticing, secretly wiped away a tear and said, and then the dog dies. The dog recognizes him. None of the humans do. It's as if the human intellect gets in the way. 
Truly, and, and it's going to be interesting because in the next scene we're going to see Odysseus is going to visit Penelope. She won't recognize him when Eurycleia, the maidservant, does. So it's the low, it, sorry, wait, it's the lowly, the servants. You're going to see this everywhere in Shakespeare, by the way. It's the servants who, who are closer to this fullness of life than the others. So a dog recognizes him. The, no, nobody else does. The humans don't. And then you're a client. This, Fred, sorry, go ahead. I'm just saying the servant had a little help. <laughs> yeah. The scar. Yes. <laughs> okay, let's go. Um, don't take away all this light I'm trying to throw on these. <laughs> You and, I'm glad you and Suzanne are keeping me honest. <laughs> On page 292, um, this is the scene in which Yorikai gets her help. 292. Well, I, I only say that because it's true. That, that, that scar yes. comes up a lot yes. during the course of the book. Here, and recognizing who he truly is. Yeah, and I want to just, I'm glad because here, she, take a look. She was, she was in position to notice the scar. Though. That's true. <laughs> Was all of you. <laughs> Carl, thanks. <laughs> you talk about I'm going to take all the help I can get here. <laughs> here on the bottom of the bottom of 292. This is one of the reasons I want to read this. Not not just because she recognized, because because to me it's really the dog recognized him. Your client did. She, she she could not have. I mean, she could have forgotten because it's clear so many of the women forget. You know. Then um, she's talking about this moment um, earlier in his life, and she's looking at Odysseus bathing. His, remember, because he's a guest, and that's what you do. Then Autolycus spoke to her and gave her an answer. My son-in-law and daughter, give him the name I tell you. Odysseus just been um, born. This is his grandfather. Since I've come to this place distasteful to many women and men alike on the prospering earth, so let him be given the name Odysseus, that is distasteful. The name Odysseus means bringing pain, making people distasteful. So everywhere we've talked about this, insofar as he represents a norm, the goodness, the virtue, he's a reminder to people who don't have that virtue of something embarrassing. That's, that's one thing, there's more. But it's interesting that everywhere, almost everywhere he goes, he brings pain. Um, on page 299, um, there's a, um, this to me is one of the most important gives away, giveaways between the adventures and the homecoming. Odysseus is finding it hard to sleep the night before the battle. On, on, this is the very beginning of book 20, 298, the very bottom. And he's making explicit the connection here. He struck himself in the chest and spoke to his heart and scolded it. Bear up my heart. You have had worse to endure before this on that day when the irresistible Cyclops ate up my strong companions. Now just hold on to that, okay? Now, he hears this thunder, if I remember, on page 300 at the very bottom. 
So he spoke in prayer, he's asking for a sign, and Zeus of the councils heard him, 301. Immediately he sent his thunder from shining Olympus, high above the clouds, and noble Odysseus was happy. And from the house a mill woman sent him an omen. She was nearby where the shepherd of the host had set up his handmills. And there twelve women and all had been bending to grind the wheat and the barley flour, men's marrow. The others since had finished grinding their wheat by now were sleeping, but this one had not ended her work and she was the weakest. She stopped the mill and spoke aloud a sign for her master, Father Zeus, you who are Lord of the gods and people, now you have thundered aloud from the starry sky, although there's no cloud. You showed this forth a portent for someone. She doesn't know. It's Odysseus. Grant now also for wretched me this prayer that I make you. On this day let the suitors take for the last and latest time their desirable feasting on the halls of Odysseus. For it is they who have broken my knees with heart sore labor as I grind the meal for them, let there be their final feasting. How did Homer describe the Cyclops when he ate them in? Breaking their knees, grinding them, chewing them. So, two things here. One is, what's happening here is what the ancient world called a taking of the auspices. A taking of the auspices. It happens everywhere in Homer. It happened a lot in the Iliad. We didn't have time to go. This is a major one. It happens everywhere in Virgil. It happens in Shakespeare. It happens in the Catholic world. An omen, a sign is given, some apparition, something happens. The, the question is, how do we know if it's real or not? That's why the Catholic Church goes through so much trouble to try to confirm sightings or apparitions, because so many people have um, very active religious, particularly religious-minded people. They're so given to making claims that have no basis in reality. That just happens all the time. The church knows that. So it's got to take trouble, pains, to make sure that in fact these things happen. Otherwise, we would go nuts. I mean, imagine that, because there are lots of people who make religious claims all the time. So an omen is given, but then to confirm it, you have to take the auspices. You have to see if it's supported by something else. What happens in the next moment? The woman calls out for this and it's confirmed. So the auspices is confirmed. It happened and it received a confirmation. But the other thing is, it, it seems to me that this is one of those things that, that we're, we're meant to, to see helps us make a connection between the adventures and home. She's an image of what the suitors do. They grind people up. They beat down their knees. We, we use these phrases. What are you, eating out of house and home? The suitors are eating up these people. So one of the most obvious matches between the adventures and home is that who are the suitors? What's underneath them? What explains them? <coughs> the Cyclops. They have one eye. They don't hear. They do not hear. The prophecies are given everywhere. They, as a matter of fact, they do not hear. Um, I hope I. Um, even when things are obvious, hold on just one second. Um, one ninety. I hope I'm right on this. I may be. Sorry. 
Yeah. Turn to page 195. This is one um, when um, Odysseus and his men are at Thrunakia and they're told not to eat the cattle, remember? In the middle of 195, the next thing was that the gods began to show forth portents before us. The skins crawled and the meat that was stuck on the spits bellowed, both roast and raw, and the noise was like the lowing of cattle. Turn to page 307. This is when the suitors arrive on the day that the battle is going to take place. And remember, um, Theoclymenos is the prophet murderer, the fugitive that um, Telemachus picks up and brings home with him. Just before the battle takes place with Theoclymenos present, it says in the page 307, Godlike Theoclymenos now spoke out among them, Poor wretches, what evil has come on you? Your heads and faces and the knees underneath you are shrouded in night and dark. This is just like the companions. Um, a sound of wailing is broken out. Your cheeks are covered with tears and the walls bleed and the fine supporting pillars. Um, where is that? All the forecourt is huddled with ghosts. The yard is full of them as they flock down to the underworld in the darkness. The sun has perished out of the sky and a foul mist has come over them. This is very much like what happens with the companions when they're eating. Um, Penelope devises the bow contest to select a husband. We know that all the, or the suitors that wanted to tried and failed. Telemachus comes up and can't do it until the fourth time. And then in the fourth time, we know he can do it. Homer makes that clear. And it's at that point that Odysseus steps forward and takes the bow. He's the father. He's in command. He's going to, that's going to, he's going to use the bow to start. But it's important because we know from that fact that finally Telemachus has stepped into manhood. If he can, if he can string that bow, he's ready to step in to do what his father can. So it's not a small moment. That's uh, Odysseus gives him the signal to not do it. Yeah, but, but the point is that point is he, he can do it when nobody else could. So this is Homer's way of showing us. Remember, this has been a big problem from the beginning. Whether he, he could accept, step into that, to be Odysseus' son and carry on what he'd begun. So, um, so Odysseus takes the bow um, and starts the battle. I, I don't want to go through it all. I just want to look at, um, you know what happens. He defeats the suitors. They're all killed. He will take the maidservants and string them up on wire. He will take Melanthios, who is a ba or a, um, one of the herders, who betrayed him because he was the one who got the armor out of the closet. So as a special punishment for him, you, you all remember what? Odysseus dismembers him, takes all of his private parts and everything else and cuts them up. And, and it's interesting because this is really interesting. Homer, this is what I mean about anti, I mean the anti-romantic here too. Um, Melanthios has um, a sister. Um, they, are, they are brother and sister of Delios, who is one of Odysseus's loyal compatriots there on the island. Delios is a good man. Two of his children are going to be butchered. His daughter was Penelope's faithful maidservant, and she betrayed her on the, tre on the uh, treadmill, the uh, weaving of the scarf thing. So she's, she's treated harshly too. 
So here are two family members who are butchered, whose father was... So the fact, Homer showed us, the fact that you come from a good family doesn't guarantee what's going to happen to you. Um, children turn out different. Um, we know this, that sometimes kids who have the best upbringing can turn out bad. And we know that very often kids who grow up in the worst impoverished conditions in the world, in some of the worst cities, somehow escape it. They just don't give in to the drugs, the violence. and I mean, you're left asking, how did, how did that person get out? So we know that families are not guarantees of whether a person could go on to be virtuous. Homer is very realistic about that. After the battle, um, after the battle, on page 339, this is wonderful. And this is what I mean by anti-romantic again. Odysseus is this great hero. He has just cleaned out a hundred suitors. I mean, is there anything more a man can do to show what a great hero is than to conquer a hundred suitors and show what a splendid masculine figure he is? He goes to his wife expecting to receive a hero's welcome. Yeah? This is how romances end. Um... Okay, page 339. He goes to Penelope and she spurns him. <laughs> He's done all of these things. He'd been trying to get home for 20 years and his wife greets him like this. He wants a hero's welcome. The bottom of 339. You are so strange. The gods who have their homes in Olympus has made your heart more stubborn than for the rest of womankind. No other woman with a spirit as stubborn as yours would hold back as you were doing from her husband, who after much suffering came in the last 20th year back to his own country. Come then, nurse, make me up a bed. Because she said, go make up a bed out, or, or make me up a bed. He, he's saying, go make up a bed, so that I can use it here, for this woman has a heart of iron within her. This is the woman that he's been looking forward to getting back to for 20 years. Circumstances. Doesn't any good romance worth salt have a little angst for <laughs> <laughs> You and I are not watching the same movies, obviously. I remember how it is. I, know, you know. I, know. I hope you and I, you and I, you know that we're not disagreeing here. I'm, I'm using the word romance. You all know those, rom those what are you, the Harlequin novels or the romance? And, 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 and I, I don't think we're going to differ. I hope not, Fred, otherwise we're in trouble. I would say 90% of the stuff coming out of Hollywood that's romantic does not end with angst. The really good movies... No, I don't say end with angst. There's always angst before the ending. But, but here, this is... Wait, because remember what happens... Remember what happens after he leaves. What Teresius said to him, he's going to go on this journey, he's got a plan, and he's going to die at sea. So this is not a Hollywood romance. This is... There is this... In fact, I'm going to say more than extraordinary. What I'm going to, in a minute, tell you what is going to happen here. Fred, hold on. Penelope says, you, <laughs> you and the companions, you are so strange. I am not being proud, not indifferent. This is Penelope now. Not puzzled beyond need, but I know very well what you looked like when you went in the ship. This, by the way, this is not the same man. I hope everybody's clear. 
when you were in the ship with the sweeping oars from Ithaca, come then, Eurycli, and make up a firm bed. Now she says, put the bed outside and cover it with the fleeces and let him sleep there. And Odysseus is really mad because he knows that the bed that he made was built on a bowl, the, the trunk of a tree, and he doesn't know what to make of that. So he gets really angry, 340 at the top. What you said, dear lady, has hurt my heart deeply. What? So it's clear that Penelope now is... is not only is Odysseus very guarded, we know that, right, all along, when Athena came up, he lied to her as a stranger. He's in a world in which evil exists. Penelope knows that. She's been confronting these suitors for 10 years or however many years. So both of them are on guard. It's one of the, it seems to me it's one of the better qualities both of them have. They're not innocent in the world. And they're not like the, they're not like the Cyclops presuming on God. They have to take responsibility for what they're doing, both as a man and a woman. What you've said, dear lady, hurt my heart deeply. What man has put my bed in another place? But it would be difficult for even a very expert one, unless a God coming to help in a person were easily to change its position. But there's no, no mortal man alive, no strong man who lightly could move the weight elsewhere. There's one particular feature in the bed's construction. I myself, no other man made it. Only Odysseus would know that. So Penelope knows now. This is her husband. There was the bowl of an olive tree, and he goes on. When she sees that, the two embrace. Now, <laughs> now we have, now we have the romantic ending. They embrace, and and um, and finally they're reconciled. So, what we have here at the ending, um, and I, I want to try to put this as strongly as I can. Remember, in the Iliad, we had that psychomachia. Remember when Achilles re-entered the war and all the gods came in and the graves opened and Hades opened and there was this dislocation in the universe. It's as if a reordering in Achilles' soul, it's a conversion moment that happens when, let's say an alcoholic, whoever it is, for any of us, when we acknowledge death, accept death, and, and there's a freedom that, that Whatever goes on in our soul means there's a writing of things. There's a right order. When he does that, he goes back into the war and nobody can touch him. And we saw the cost of it, how great it was. He has to accept his death and he has to be honest about his failings. Those are the conditions before he goes back. And once he does, nobody can defeat him. I want to line that up here because it seems to me what Homer is showing us is that it's only after confronting all of these archetypes in women and in what's aroused in him because of that power that he can have this moment so that the two of them are reunited. Because remember, the epic is always masculine in form. It's always about the male and what the male has to bring to these, these problems. So um, later, the two of them go to bed on page 341, and this is what happens in this moment. Now dawn of the rosy fingers, about line 240, now dawn of the rosy fingers would have dawned on their weeping because they're, because they're both telling their stories. They both have stories to tell. Even if Odysseus is make up, they are two human beings. Nestor, we never hear from Nestor's wife. We know about the difficulties with Menelaus and, and uh, Helen. She could not let him go from the embrace of her white arms. Now dawn of the rosy fingers would have dawned on their weeping had not the gray-eyed goddess Athena planned it otherwise. 
She held the long night back at the outward edge. She detained Dawn of the golden throne by the ocean and would not let her harness her fast-footed horses who bring the daylight of people. Just let me stop for a moment. Remember that I said one of the qualities that distinguishes these homes in the Telemachi, the opening books, is that they're trapped in the past. We've seen that. We saw it in the Iliad. We've seen it everywhere here, that how difficult it is to get free from the wounds that humans carry from the past, because we all carry them. Here, remember, and I also said that the typical reading of the epic, Bakhtin, the Russian formalist that I've mentioned, I think probably makes the, the, the presentation clearer and better than anybody else. But remember that the, the typical reading of the epic is in the epic, we go back into an idealized world. It's not in the present. We go back into the past. And we've got this image of this great hero. I've suggested that that's true in some respects. We go back into this past. But the, one, of the, one of the things that the hero accomplishes that makes possible this new founding, this new thing that he brings into existence with the help of the gods, this new order, this kleos or this nostos, is that he brings it into the present. When, it, when Achilles accepts his death, we have to say he enters a new time. Nobody can touch him. He's no longer burdened by those things. And I think we have to say that that's true here. Unlike the marriages in Pylos and Sparta, um, Odysseus and Penelope have struggled for 20 years and finally here, they weep, they tell the stories, and Athena holds time still. They are no longer as time as we know it. They come into, I mean, I don't know what to call it, a timeless present. There is no time as we know it in the rest of the world. So I think we're meant to feel in this moment that Homer, Homer realizes that there are these moments in our lives when something like this can happen. Okay? And then you know, I, I, I want to stop, you know what happens after this, that Odysseus will have to go out and, and quell the even after the romantic ending, you know, the angst that he has to deal with because all of the fathers of the killed sons are outraged. So the fighting never stops. He has to go out and kill. And it's interesting, it's only because the gods intervene that they can bring that battle to an end. And we know, even though, the, even though that comes to an end, that Odysseus is going to go off. We, we learn that from Tiresias's prophecy that things have not ended for him. He will, he will die at sea and... So that's just, I just want to put that together. Now, what, um, two things that I want to do quickly before I try to get to Christ. Um, I want to remind you, remember, I, I read that poem, the Shakespeare poem, deliberately, because I wanted to set that out. Um, the argument that I'm going to make here is that there's nothing that Odysseus faces at sea that he will not find in Penelope. Circe, Calypso, the Lestrigonese queen, the large sphere of influence, the power and violence that's worked around her, that every one of those things is something we find in her, okay? And he has to learn to come to terms with them before he can come home, because if he doesn't, it, 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 he will not answer all of these things. And remember what I said about the Iliad? Remember that circle I drew with all the battles in the ascending order? And I said it was really interesting that, that Homer had ordered them up to show 
that we were coming to something special in the battle with Achilles and Hector and and to me what is an embarrassment in what Hector does when he says he's more concerned about what people will think than Achilles because Achilles has stepped outside of that code completely. Um, that I think we find the same thing here because I said then and I believe it really strongly and I, I believe this is what Homer believes that all of those men participated in the honor code. They all gave their lives. You cannot fault them. So they were heroic in some way. But what we're meant to see is that in some way they're participating in something that's only fully realized in Achilles. He's the perfection of that kleos, this intrinsic sense that gets despoiled. Yeah? I think Homer's showing us the same thing here that Odysseus is the fulfillment of all of those qualities, those virtues that a man is capable of, but the cost of doing it is extraordinary. So what we see in Spartan Pylos may not be Penelope and, and Odysseus's marriage, but it, they're good marriages. They're still good, just like the fighters are good. So Homer's realist in this sense, that, and, and I'm amazed at how it lines up with, the, I'm gonna say the Old Testament and New Testament. Cain killed his brother, and God exiled him, but God wanted nobody to harm that man. And we get all these messages in the Bible, God reigns on the good and evil. You know, that he, he, his love is constant no matter what people do. He's always wanting people to come back. Theoclymenos prophecies just before the men die. That it, he says, Odysseus is home, and we've got that moment where the cattle are lowing, and we, you know, it's a harking back to what happened at Thrinakia. He's a killer, but he's a prophet. He's there. So Homer has, and, and remember, the Cyclops and the, the Ephiakians were beloved of the gods. They were together once, even if they went. So, and, and the gods love their children. Polyphemus is one of Poseidon's children. So there's this amazing sense in the classical world that the modern world, particularly the Protestant world, does not have that everything in nature is good. People can deviate from it. They can become bad. But the suitors are not good people. Homer showed us we have free will. You can make these choices. People do different things. But nature in itself is good. I mean, it's... A, it's sort of amazing there is this inherent goodness to things that we see in this world. Now, quick, two things to go back to this. One, the feminine archetypes. Remember, both goddesses are described as being off alone. Off alone. Off alone. Off by themselves. The word calypso... is the word from which we get um, apocalyptic. Apocalyptic, right? Calypso means conceal. Apocalyptic means unconceal, revelation. Yeah? Calypso's name derives from the Greek calyptane, which means cover or conceal, from which we get apocalypse to come out. Calyptane is also, interestingly, the source of our word hell. 
Calypso wants Odysseus to be with her and she offers him immortality. This is amazing to me. If Odysseus accepts her, he will lose his homecoming and he will lose his kleos because she will keep him concealed. Remember, the end of a man in Homer's world is to fulfill whatever he's been given to do. Yeah? Remember in the Iliad, men had to come out. Remember they, when, they, when they hid, they were in a pack, the swarm. When they entered that swarm or the pack, they had no identity. They were undifferentiated. It's only when they came out that they were named. So for, and that's why Homer names every man in every battle when they die. Remember I said that. He, he, it's his way of honoring people. Everyone was named. So Calypso poses a threat to Odysseus's achieving his homecoming and his clays. Okay? This thing about language. Um, but also think about this. Doc, wait. Give me five minutes. I don't, I just, I don't want to lose candy here. Um, okay. Um, where am I going? Where am I going? Account, where am I going? Um, oh, my mind. Oh, no, no. I know. Oh, Calypso and Circe are both described as being far away from the habits of men. When Hermes comes to Calypso to free Odysseus, he says, I don't want to be here. It's a, it's a, it's a strange place. The gods have no, you know. I think, I think this is where Dante gets his treatment of the siren, by the way. Think about what would happen if Calypso is an image of, of that habit in man to idealize a woman to make her more than she is and to love that, how will he go to his end? I mean, to me, it's like um, Aias hugging his shield. He will go to his death hugging this image that's not real. It's like an idealized picture of his, wo of his wife or his beloved when it's not her. So what he'll end up doing is isolating himself. I mean, I really picture Aias going off with his shield, which he, what was the word I used? Relish, you know, sort of hugging it as he went off mourning for it, the way Dido did with um, Aeneas in the underworld. Imagine, imagine Odysseus accepting that. He's a natural man. He has a body. He's meant to get home. The danger at, we saw with Hector. Hector wanted to be like a god. If Odysseus loves that, this is Dante's treatment of the siren that I'm drawing here, he will love what we call an, a piece of idolatry. We, we, we make something more than it is as a way of enhancing our own love. That's the way we, we, it's one of the ways we show our pride to make something that it's not to elevate ourselves. So she offers him immortality. Picture that, if she's this, he would be off alone forever. Scary image for me. Same thing with Calypso, except sexually more. In, in, in. So we've got all of these things that he has to learn to deal with. So what does it mean when he comes home? Let me read this. How are we supposed to understand this moment of his homecoming? When he defeats the suitors? Um, remember those, those Strigonese queen had this great sphere of influence and violence around her? Calypso, Circe, Scylla, Charybdis, Siren, all of them. 
I'm going to say all of them are there in Penelope. Because that's going to be true for every man for whom that beauty has that kind of power. Um, what is he facing at home because of Penelope? It's, um, is it really possible to understand his struggles without linking her with the feminine figures of the wandering? What aspects of the feminine do they image? The enormous Lestrigonese queen seems to image inordinate power or influence in her home. She's surrounded by a hundred suitors. I mean, imagine the Hollywood women who have a beauty, who have, I mean, whatever. I mean, you don't have to look very far to find that kind of sphere of influence because that power is so great. Imagine a Hollywood celebrity going out into the public, a beautiful woman. Circe, the sexual attraction that brings out the animal in men. Calypso, the possessiveness, the seductions of a spiritual immortal love. The sirens, the allure or beckoning effects of beauty. Skill and Charybdis, the condition of choice that no man can escape without pain when in the presence of beauty. Every man in the presence of beauty is going to suffer, particularly if beauty, if beauty is a transcendent quality. And I'm arguing that it is. I think Homer's making that pretty clear. The condition of choice. And finally, Nausicaa, feminine promise. Youth, beauty, graciousness, all that a woman promises to be when finally loved. How are they present in Penelope? This is crucial. Penelope is the epitome of the feminine. She has contained in her all of the feminine disorders mentioned above, and here's the clicker, to disordered men. Men whose lusts give women inordinate powers. They are present in conspicuous ways in Clytemnestra and Helen to the suitors as an image of feminine beauty and sexuality. Penelope is an overpowering temptation, an object to be used to gratify their lust as well as their cravings for power. To them, as lawless men, she is death. Those skulls on the shoreline of Scylla could just as well be Odysseus's home. To them, as lawless men, she is death. To Odysseus, the virtuous man, who has learned restraint and all the virtues that I'm claiming he has learned to come home because that's, that's what the homecoming means. It doesn't mean going home to walls and it means recovering a sense of order, the right order of the soul with those that you love. To them as lawless men, she's death. To Odysseus, the virtuous man who has learned restraint, self-control, she is beautiful, faithful, pious, modest, wise, clever, guarded at the end, cunning like Odysseus, respected and loved. She is a trial to him for 20 years, helper, temptress, goal. She is finally fulfillment at the very end. But that depends on his overcoming those things. So when he kills a hundred suitors, what I'm suggesting, what he's, what, what we're, I think, being invited to see is that he is defeating the appetites. Because remember the nature of the soul as I drew it, the reason, the spiritedness, and the appetites? The appetites are legion. Cut one off, another one comes up. The, how could it be 100? I mean, 100 is too square a number. For him to defeat the suitors is an indication that he has overcome those things in himself to have this relationship with his wife. So like the Iliad, which is about an ordering of the soul with respect to Kleos, 
This is about an ordering of the soul with respect to those potentials for virtue that every soul has in relation to those they love at home. The Iliad's about individual honor. The Odyssey's about love and marriage and home. Now quickly, sorry to do this as quickly. Christ, where is Christ in this? Let me suggest quickly. I'm going to offer several ways in which I see Christ in Odysseus. And then you can tell me if I need to retire. Um, I wish we had time to go into the punning. When, when we get into the punning of the language in the Greek, Odysseus, when, the, when Polyphemus comes into the cave, Odysseus says, Odomai, which is a pun on a word. There's, there's no way the Cyclops is going to hear that pun. There's punning all the way through those episodes in the Greek. You, you won't know it unless you knew Greek, but what we see is that Odysseus is learning to use words. To, remember that prudence is one of the virtues? He knows what to do under certain circumstances to manage that way, what he has to do. So he's not just a, a warrior cutting you know, his way through things. He has to learn to manage, to, to do what's right under certain circumstances, to work with people. And so how does he resemble Christ? A number of ways. First, in the cave, he is nobody. He is present and not present at the same time. Christ was here and not here. He was a god here. Um, Odysseus is, is not recognized for who he is. When he goes to Polyphemus, when he goes to um, Calypso, when he goes to the Phaeacians, every one of them had, had received a prophecy that this person would come. Nobody recognizes him. Even when he's home, he's still nobody. So there's this quality of self-effacement, of learning to put himself away that's exactly like Christ. In order to do what he has to do, he has to learn to deny himself, to put himself away. So there's, he is a nobody. He's here and not here. He's who he is and not. He's, it's prophesied that he will come. They don't see him. When Christ came, they didn't see him, even when he was here. He brings a new possibility into the present. He offers a way of escaping of freeing people from being trapped in the past in order to have a new kind of love in the present. It's so remarkable that, that Homer has no other way of showing it except to say Athena stops time for a moment. So what we're seeing are, is that there are these extraordinary possibilities in our human nature that can help us come out of the wounds. Is it easy? Look at what Achilles faced. The cost of what Achilles did was nothing, was nothing short of death. What did Christ say? Unless you die to yourself, unless you, put your, unless you stop doing this stuff, unless you put yourself away to do this, you will not. So um, he has that quality. The most important thing in his life is getting home to his marriage. The, Bible, the New Testament is full of wedding metaphors. What do we call it? I can't think of that word, the, 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 the banquet table, the, the nuptial things. Christ keeps talking about the, the bridegroom and you know, the bride. In the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation ends with Christ saying, come, come, come to the bride. Come. 
So that one of the greatest metaphors that runs through the Old Testament of Christ is the bride calling his bride to come home so that the two can be reconciled, so that they can enter into um, to the marital relationship. The homecoming, coming home, going home, recovering an order. The parousia, the return of the king, um, it's all foreshadowing of Christ. And the mean, I've gone back to it again and again, that in Odysseus we're, we're seeing the virtue that a man is capable of when he learns from these extremes around him what not to do in order to become a better person so that when he comes home, he brings these things. If Christ was anything, he was virtuous as a human. Temperate, moderate, just. Now, does that mean he's Christ? Absolutely not. We're not in a world in which faith, hope, and charity cast a light on everything. That's a Christian world. We're not there. We won't be there again until Dante, and after Dante was Shakespeare. This is the natural world. The whole purpose of this part of our course was to show the Logos is present in nature. God made nature. We live in a modern world. A Protestant mind has blasted it. There's, 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 none of this exists. The natural order is depraved. We live in a black-white world. Um, in the classical world, nature was full of potentialities. God made it. He was revealed everywhere. So one of the reasons for going back to this, to me, is to, is to recover some sense of what we've lost, that humans have been given this potential to be good, to become virtuous people. But the cost of it is temperance. We have to learn self-control. Prudence, we have to learn to take responsibility for evil. Justice, we have to give others their due. And we've seen we can't do that if we don't change ourselves. Um, fortitude, courage being willing to face difficulties when they come. That means all of us. We can't expect other people to do that. We have to do that. We have to do the things that we don't want to do to become better. So in remarkable ways, we're not in a Christian world. This is not, these are not the supernatural virtues. They're not faith, hope, and charity. Those are supernatural. These are the natural virtues. This is the nature that God created. That's why we seems to me the value of going back to this. So let me stop here. So if we were going to go on, we'd do the Aeneid. Sorry, we've already done that. We're going to, I, I can't tell you how much. I, having done the, the Alien Odyssey, my, my first impulse is we cannot stop this until we do the Aeneid. <laughs> Truly, because if you don't do the Aeneid, you just, the, the Rome and the city of Rome, the eternal city is next. And then after that, it's Dante. And then you see this amazing tradition and then Shakespeare and we're into the modern world, but we don't have time, so so let me stop. Any quick questions? Sorry, it's so I, it would have been good if I'd stopped five minutes ago, but I'm, you know how bad I am at this. Fred, did you have something? Well, I, I think you made an answer because of the nature of the world that we're currently in, where things tend to be more black and white. If, I just found it interesting that the ultimate solution that Ended the war, if you will. In the Iliad? It, no, in here. In the Odyssey. Mm -hmm. You mean the war, the, the Trojan War, the, well, or the, the battle? war between Odysseus and 
the suitors. suitors yeah. And 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 their fathers. Yes. And it was ultimately Athena turning to Zeus and saying, How do you plan for this thing to end? And Zeus says, I think you already know, but here's my answer. Mm -hmm. You know, that everybody's just gonna put down their swords and lightning all. And the interesting thing is that that solution never never came to Odysseus ever. It was the only way this thing can end is all these suitors have to die. Even though they were the sons of of men that he fought with in the war. But it never occurred to him that, well, if I go talk to the fathers and say, hey, number one, I'm home. Number two, my wife has no interest in your sons. Would they have just brought them all home and ended the thing? Let me ask the this. Only, yeah. The answer was, these guys have to die. Have, yeah, well, I mean, let me ask it that way. Let, let me ask it this way. Particularly if you look at what goes on in our cities today. If men have grown up under these, without a masculine ruler, without order, and you've got a generation of young people growing up who are given to violence, and you went to them and said, put away your ways, let's negotiate. Um, is it really realistic to think that you could go away and they still would? Because you, we know that they planned to kill Telemachus. They were going to ambush him. Is there any likelihood that they, is it really realistic to think that they wouldn't want to kill Odysseus too? Because we know that there are people in the world who, who want, or at least I believe there are people in the world who are so committed to this, they will co commit violence. Their evil exists in the world. And we have, one of the things that Homer's doing is dealing with it. And I, I think for him, my answer to that is, um, he, he knows that talking with people is not, going to help um, under certain conditions that something's, we're going to have to go to war, we're going to have to defeat it, there will be violence that um, there's something in the world that won't listen or hear or, and, it's, and it's particularly virulent in communities where there's no order and, and people have been encouraged to be that way for what we've got here as a generation practically. But I know, I know Doc. Um, Shakespeare. Right now, I can't tell you how much I want to go into the Aeneid and Virgil. <laughs> Next week, Shakespeare. You guys have a good week.